verse in the Bible than what we have just read. That in Christ Jesus, we sinners deserving judgment have no condemnation. That we who deserved an eternity in hell under the worst of judgment have been given eternal life and have been acquitted and made righteous before you and have been given promises that we shall become heirs of the world. Lord, Your works and Your wisdom is unfathomable to a sinner who knows the depths of the depravity of his own heart. And so, Father, we thank You for Christ. And we thank You that He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that You have done for us what the law could not do. You have given us Christ to be our Savior and atonement and Redeemer and King. So Father, I pray that this morning these truths would dwell richly in our hearts so that through them we might be made into a people who fulfill the law by loving one another as a result of the grace we have experienced in Jesus. Lord, open up Your Word for us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, today marks the second week of our Advent series, From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. And as I explained last week, if you weren't here, the theme of this Advent series is taken from one of the lines of the hymn, The Church's One Foundation, that says, from heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. And this line provides for us a very beautiful summary of the Gospel about the person and work of Christ, about His divine nature and His anticipated entrance into the world and what that entrance into the world means for us as human beings in this world. And this line is is really what Advent is all about. It is the season in which the coming of the long-awaited Messiah is both remembered because He has come once before, as well as being anticipated as we believe because He has died and has been resurrected and ascended Into heaven He will return to bring the fullness of His kingdom again. And so we celebrate His work and His first coming and His second coming and the significance and the implications of all of these things. And so each week of this season of Advent, to celebrate together the work of our great King and Savior, we are taking each phrase of this glorious line from this glorious hymn as our theme. 
for each week and unpacking what the Bible says about it. So last week we began with the phrase, from heaven. And we beheld, as it were, the glory of Christ as we looked at the beginning of His prayer to God the Father in John 17. And we saw through that prayer that Christ is unique and utterly unlike any other human being that has ever walked on the earth and that the world has ever known. Not simply, as we saw, because of His wisdom. Not simply because He was some great religious influence. But because He is eternally the Son of God. He has authority over all creation. All things were made by Him and through Him. And all things were made for Him and for His glory. And therefore, when He was conceived and was born, He did not begin to exist as we all do when we are conceived and born. Rather, in that miraculous virgin birth, God became flesh. That's a glorious truth. This week we are looking at the phrase, He came. From heaven, He came. And I don't want us to focus so much on His coming this morning as a fact. The fact that He came, that is certainly true. There is a fact of the incarnation. The fact of His coming, that confession is true and basic to every right understanding of Christianity and the Gospel, but we pretty much saw that last week, the fact of His coming. What I want us to focus on this morning is on the purpose of His coming. Why was it necessary for the Son of God to be sent by the Father into the world. Why was it necessary that the Son of God give up the glory He had eternally in the presence of the Father, the splendor and the majesty and the power, and become a man of no reputation, a man of no prominence or fortune, and a man who would eventually be despised by his own people and die the death of a common criminal. Why was this necessary? This is not, friends, a purely theological question. This is not a question for our imaginations to simply play with. How we answer this question tells us if we possess a knowledge of the true Gospel. And how we feel, how our hearts feel about the answer to this question tells us if we know God. Got an answer, and I got a heart response to it. And that determines whether or not we really know God. It tells us whether or not we really know what's in our own hearts. And it shows us, ultimately, whether or not the faith that we profess to have is a true faith 
or a false faith? And so this question has to do with the eternal state of our souls. It doesn't get, quite frankly, much weightier than that. But even in addition to that, it has to do with our lives now. How they are lived now in this world as we await the second coming of Christ. Is your life now one that has been transformed, made new, completely different? Have you experienced a new birth and a new creation? Is your life one that is lived by the power of the Spirit? Is the Spirit working powerfully in your heart? Do you fulfill the law? Do you fulfill the law by loving especially the people of God and in addition to them, the world? Those who will persecute you and hate you and despise you for the sake of Christ and because you bear His name. Are you fulfilling the law in loving people and especially people of God. Friends, this, this, is, this is basic Christianity 101. There is no loving Jesus apart from loving His people. There is no following Christ apart from a life in His body and a loving of His people because He identifies Himself with those people. With the church. So does your life look like that? Or is your life one that is characterized by constant bondage and enslavement to your own self-seeking passions? Does the law of sin and death reign in you rather than the law of of the Spirit? Is anger or lust or greed or pride the constant ruling powers in your life? Jesus is coming into the world and the work that He accomplished not only speaks to those everyday issues, but it affects them. It it, it shapes them. It changes how they are experienced. Pride, greed, anger in Christ, these things are not embraced. These things are not loved. They are not cherished because as a Christian and as one who has tasted the grace of God, we know these things kill the soul. And so, if Christ is in your life, You are in a war against them. So why did Jesus come into the world? Well, there's two main answers to that question that we can take from Romans 8, verses 1 to 4. Why did Jesus come into the world? The first is a legal reason. There's a legal reason. He came so that those who trust 
in him may be legally acquitted before God. Legally acquitted before God, which, that's the positive thing, and on the negative side, that means that we are all legally guilty before Him and have a need to be acquitted. This truth, I just said, our desperate need to be acquitted before a holy and righteous God This truth is perhaps the most radically opposite truth of everything our culture believes about humanity. Just this past week, we've seen yet again the absolute confusion our society has over the evil that is present in humanity. Earlier in the week, as many of you probably know, a husband and a wife entered a facility in San Bernardino, California, and began shooting at everyone at a holiday party, eventually killing 14, wounding 17 others, and being killed themselves in a shootout with the police. Just about a week before this shooting, another man in Colorado Springs killed three individuals at a Planned Parenthood facility in a shootout and a standoff with police. And as these events unfolded, and as other events like them in the past have unfolded, what is interesting to see is how the news outlets attempt to explain these very events. Probably 99% of the time, the go-to explanation is that whoever has committed these crimes must be suffering from some kind of mental illness that makes them commit these crimes. And there's a worldview behind those explanations. There's a perspective, knowingly or unknowingly, that is behind those explanations. It's a highly secular worldview that operates with the belief that every human being is at least neutral or, more often than not, is inherently morally good. That's the the operating assumption. Everyone in the world is naturally good. That's how we're born. We're born good and we remain Good, unless something else comes into our lives and changes that. That is how we are as human beings, fundamentally good. And so when these obvious acts of pure evil take place, this is clearly a deviation from how people should be. Good. And the category of sin and evil doesn't fit neatly into a world where there is no God or where God is totally uninvolved in creation. And so the only real valid explanation that fits is that these people have to have some kind of chemical imbalance going on. There has to be some kind of natural explanation for these events, some sort of psychological abnormality or some other kind 
of mental illness. These people who are committing these crimes and these heinous acts are totally unlike everyone else. They're, they're deviations. They're not the norm. The Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible says that these people or those people out there that you see on the news are just like you and me and everyone else. We are all naturally evil, sinful, and legally guilty before God. We are rebels and lawbreakers. That's what we do. In the letter to the Romans that we are in, this is where Paul begins his explanation of the Gospel message with this very reality. In Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then from that verse on, he unpacks why the world needs the Gospel. How it receives salvation. How God is sovereignly working out His saving plans for the good of His people through the spread of the Gospel. And what kind of life that Gospel calls us to live. But he begins in Romans 1.18 with a three-chapter-long argument about how every human being who is living is not naturally a good person, but is in fact unrighteous before God and are already under His righteous judgment. So he says in verse 18, just after that, verse 16, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, how is the wrath of God revealed from heaven? How do we know? Right? Paul, Paul's making a claim here. How do we know that judgment is the present disposition of God towards humanity in the world apart from Christ, the the reason He gives is one that you might not expect. The reason He gives is that we can see evil in humanity. How, How is judgment, how do we see judgment present in this world? We can see evil. We see humanity Doing evil things. The existence of evil in the world for Paul is not an argument against the existence of God. You often hear that, right? How can there be a God in the world if there is evil? Well, for Paul, that is the very evidence that there is a God and that there is judgment currently in the world. Paul says it is an argument 
for the reality of the judgment of God. You see, what Paul says in Romans 1 is that the heart of man, every man, our heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We are constantly worshiping the created world rather than creation. God has created us from the beginning so that we might live for His glory and honor Him and worship Him and reflect His image and dominion in creation. But rather than worshiping God, we have become a people who worship the creation. That's where he begins. Idolatry. He says in verse 23 that we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Ancient pagans worshipped literal figures made out of wood or gold that represented their deities. And modern pagans worship other people. Or what other people have. We worship celebrities. We worship governments. We worship wealth. We worship fame. But all of us, modern people and ancient people, have this one thing in common. We are all idolaters at heart. And so because we have rejected God and put in His place the lusts of our own hearts, God, as a judgment, gives us over to those very things. Romans 1.28 says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, and the list goes on. But notice what Paul says there. He, God, gave them up to those lusts. That's what they desired. He gives them up to them. And so the presence of evil, shootings, war, gossip, slander, pride, exploitation, the presence of this evil, these are not signs that God is absent. These are signs of God's Judgment and signs that the judicial status of humanity is guilty everywhere. That is the central problem that the world faces. It is not that God is evil and hates us and despises humanity. It is not that God takes pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does not. He says that very clearly in Ezekiel. The central problem that we face is that God is the purest of pure. 
and the holiest of holy, completely and fully good, and we are not. And therefore, as a good God, the judgment that He must render against evil is the judgment of guilty. That is a good and a right and an accurate judgment. But what Paul says, when we get to Romans 8, is that now, this same God has done something incredible to provide for us rightly condemned sinners the judgment of not guilty, of acquitted, of righteous. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 3, he explains what has taken place for this verdict to be possible. And it has to do with the coming of the Son. This is why He came. This is why He was sent. Verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. The law of God can only do two things. Either it it acquits the righteous or it condemns the guilty. That's all it does. That's all you would want it to do. That's all you want any law to do is to acquit the righteous and to condemn the guilty. The law has no power to make anyone an actual law keeper nor any power to prevent someone from being a lawbreaker. That's that's not what it can do. When Paul speaks about what the law of God cannot do, he was referring here to the law's inability to render a verdict of innocent for us. It can't do that. right? It's a righteous law. We are unrighteous sinners. The law cannot give us that verdict that we so desperately need. Can't do that because we're not innocent, and neither could the law of God ever render a verdict of guilty against the Son of God. The law of God could never condemn the Son of God because he had never sinned, he was innocent. So the law has no power to release us from the sentence of death, and it has no power to sentence the Son of God to death. Yet, Paul is saying here that God has done what the law could not do. And He's done it in such a way that He is not acting contrary to His nature. He's not doing something that's unrighteous and would require us to render Him the verdict of guilty and unrighteous judge. Verse 3 again. 
by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, meaning Jesus becomes a fully human being. He's sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. He takes upon our weaknesses. He gets hungry. He's thirsty. His body ages. It can die. He takes upon Himself the likeness of sinful flesh and He is sent for sin, namely to become a sin offering and atonement. So by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, whose sin there did He condemn? It wasn't Jesus' sin. He didn't have any. So when He says He condemned sin, it's not Jesus' sin, it's our sin. He condemned our sin. And whose flesh was condemned? It wasn't ours. We didn't die on a cross. It was the flesh of Jesus. The likeness of sinful flesh that He inhabited. So, so God has condemned our sin in His flesh, is what Paul is saying. So what God has done is that He has taken upon Himself in the person of the Son of God the punishment that our sin deserves. And therefore, our sin, having already been condemned on the cross, no longer condemns us. If our sin has already been dealt with in the person of Christ, there is no more sin left to be dealt with and the verdict that we can receive by virtue of Christ's work is no condemnation. Is acquitted. Is righteous. We receive the verdict of innocent through Jesus. Friends, This is a sweet exchange. A sweet exchange that the Son of God would die for the ungodly. Guilty, helpless, lost, were we blameless Lamb of God, was He sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah. What a Savior. This is the exchange. This is the exchange that makes it possible for us to receive the verdict we need. And friends, the reason that we are seeing, number one, that Jesus came into the world was for this very purpose. So that our legal standing before God might be one of innocence. As if we had never sinned. But that's not all. That's not everything. As if that wasn't enough, being legally justified before God is simply the necessary and beginning work of Jesus transforming us into a Spirit-filled and God-loving and joy-pursuing new creation. It's what's required 
if we are to be remade. We have to first have a legal standing of righteous before God. And as we have that legal standing, now begins the even greater work of remaking us into something that is not full of sin, but is full of the glory of Christ within us. If, if as Jesus and the rest of the New Testament teaches us, we are fundamentally evil, right? This is even what Jesus teaches when He speaks of Gentiles giving gifts to one another. He says, if, if you being evil can give good gifts to men, this is Jesus' verdict as well, that humanity is evil. So if we are fundamentally evil, then not only do we need some miracle of God to give us a good legal standing, but we need to be fundamentally remade. Our hearts have to become something different from what they were before. A broken clock doesn't need super glue. It needs brand new gears. And a leopard doesn't become a domesticated kitten by giving it a litter box. That leopard has to become a new creation. Something new. And so also, also do sinners whose hearts are enslaved to sin by nature need to be freed and remade into something new. They need a different principle or a different power within them that directs their affections away from the lust of the flesh and towards the love of God and the seeking of His glory. And that is also what Jesus came to do. He came to give us spiritual power to overcome the destructive power of sin and death. Verse 2, Romans 8, Paul gives the evidence that verse 1 is true in our lives. So verse 1 is a legal declaration, no condemnation. Verse 2 is the evidence that that is true and present within your life. Verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How do I know this is true? Verse 2, for the law or the principle or the power of the Spirit of life, that is, the Holy Spirit that gives life, the power of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law or the principle or the power of sin and death. So, the evidence of my no-condemnation verdict before God is that sin is no longer the reigning power in my life. The Spirit is the reigning power in my life. Sinless perfection may not be a reality for me, which is true. It's not a reality for anyone. It wasn't a reality for the apostles. That's what happens only when we are fully glorified and receive new 
bodies in the resurrection. So sinless perfection may not be a reality for me, but neither should sinful enslavement be a reality. Because in Christ, we are told, we are made free. We are set free from the power of sin and death. In other words, as a Christian, I may sin. I will sin. If you think, if you have any notion that the church is a place where sin doesn't exist, you're in for a rude awakening. The church is a place where sinners repent together and help one another as they continue on towards the path of the celestial city. So as a Christian, I may sin, but the grace of Christ and the gift of the Spirit will lead me towards a godly sorrow over that sin and repentance. I will not embrace it. I will not love it. I will not cherish it. But if on the other hand, my sin and my judgment isn't that big of a deal... I mean, it's just some trivial thing that people talk about. Yeah, we're, we're all sinners. We're all sinners saved by grace. Or maybe I've come to a point where I've, I've made peace with it. I'm okay with it. I find it to be much more satisfying than Jesus. Then I am a slave to it. And it rules over me. And there's no evidence that I can say that for me there is no condemnation. There's no evidence of that. There's no evidence that you've been set free if you love and you've embraced your sin with no godly sorrow and no desire for repentance. And if that is a state you are in, it is a dangerous one to be in. John Bunyan, the one who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, once wrote that peace in a sinful course is one of the greatest curses. Making peace with a path characterized by an embrace and a love for lusts and sin is perhaps one of the greatest curses you could be under. It's what we saw in Romans 1. A giving over. That is an evidence, not simply that a judgment will be, but that a judgment is now. Christ came not so that we might have a legal justification before God and then be left in our current state of nature. He came to do even more. He came, as the hymn says, to break the power of canceled sin. And He gives us His Spirit to free us from its deadly grip. Notice also what Paul says in verse 4 of chapter 8. Verse 4 gives the purpose for Jesus' coming and being our substitute. He says, It says there that God sent His Son to condemn our sin in His flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This this righteous requirement of the law is another way of saying what the law demands. A summary of what the law demands. It's a summary of all of the commandments you find especially in the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. And the way Paul summarizes the law for us in Romans 13 is also how it's summarized in the Old Testament. And it's also how Jesus summarizes the law for us. But what he says in Romans 13, he puts it like this. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's in verse 8. And then in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the summary of the law. The law is can be broken down and, and put into a, a, a bite-sized, tweetable statement. <laughs> love one another and you fulfill the law. And if we love one another and we fulfill the law, Paul says this is the reason Jesus came and He was condemned so that this Righteous requirement, namely to love one another and so fulfill the law, might be fulfilled in us. This is the purpose. Not only that we might be justified, but that we might be remade into a people who in our lives, day by day, are fulfilling the law by loving one another. So Jesus makes us into a new people. Characterized by love. And that's the opposite. That's the opposite of what the work of sin does. When is the last time that sin has ever brought any kind of peace into your life? Or the last time that any kind of relationship has ever been reconciled by embracing sin? doesn't happen because sin's work and its aim is to work death fully in our lives. And so Jesus' work is the opposite of the work of sin. And we are, moreover, given the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit, as a new power within us so that we can live out the commandment to love one another. And, and we don't do it. Right? As a means of earning the favor of God. Because we have that. That's there. Sin has been canceled. Jesus' verdict, and the verdict of God because of His work, has been rendered righteous. So now, our law obedience, our loving one another, is not a means of earning the favor of God. It is, it is flowing out of the abundance of a joyful heart that sees in Christ the perfect image of love and desires to imitate in your own life that image of love. 
And so Jesus came not simply to give us a righteous standing before a holy God, but to remake us into a people who love one another and to give us the power and means to fulfill this calling by His Spirit. But there's one last point that we should see here from the text as we close this morning. Receiving the verdict of no condemnation, receiving the power of the Spirit, and being set free from sin and death and resting in the secure hope of everlasting life and the hope of a world being remade, it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. This hope, this life, this promise is not for everyone. These are not universal promises enjoyed by everyone now. That's what I mean. There is an exclusivity to these things. There is an in and an out. There is an inside and an enjoyment of these promises and an outside of these promises. In verses 1 and 2, Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he says that we are set free by the Spirit of life if we are in Christ Jesus. Outside of Christ, these things are not true. Outside of Christ, the verdict is not no condemnation. The verdict is guilty. Outside of Christ, there is no freedom. There is only bondage. There is only oppression. There is only darkness. Outside of Christ, it is only a desert wilderness of death and judgment. It is a place where one thirsts and is never satisfied. And where one is hungry but never filled. Outside of Christ, there is only condemnation because outside of Christ, there is no answer for sin. Friends, Christians have historically always preached the Gospel in this manner, saying that salvation and everlasting life and the joys of heaven and the joys of knowing God are only found in Christ and are not found in any other religion or in any other philosophy because none other provides a way for our sin to be addressed. There's no answer. You can boil down the rest of the philosophies of the world to do more. Follow this. Keep these commandments. Meditate more like Buddha. Worship more of this pantheon of gods. Do more. It's law-keeping. Every religion, there's no answer for sin and there's no answer to transform a sinner from within and to make him a new creation. That is why the Gospel is exclusive 
in that all of the promises and the power of the Gospel is only for those in Christ. It is universal in the sense that the message goes out to all. And the message is very simply, flee from the wrath to come and flee from the religions and the philosophies you are holding on so dearly to because there's no answer there. There's only death. There's only mourning. There's only shootings. Christ provides the very means that a sinner who only seeks his self-worth and his own own desires, Christ is the only one that can remake a heart. Christ is the only one through whom a life can be characterized by a life of love. Several years ago, I went to a conference in Alabama on repentance and missions. And there were some guests. There were some guest speakers there. And some people explaining to everyone who was there about the work of the gospel in the countries they were in. And there were two different speakers. One was from Lebanon. Middle Eastern, Arab. And the other was a Jew. And the Jew had come to know Christ as his Savior, had embraced the Gospel, life, and so had the Arab. Had been called out of his life and devotion of Islam. And the only thing you see currently in that region right now is war and death and destruction. There's a battle that has been going on for centuries. And it will not end if there is no true answer. And the true answer is not going to come by treaties. And it's not going to come through wars. And it's not going to come through bombings. What I was able to see at that conference is that it's only going to come through the Gospel. Here we had an Arab who vocally told us how much he hated Jews. And here we had a Jew who vocally told us how much he hated Arabs. And I remember that the Lebanese man got up and he began to explain the work of the Gospel in his land. But he took a moment and he took a break. He paused and he pointed to the Jew. He said, you see that man? He's my brother. He's my brother. We're in the same family. We've been reconciled to Christ together. The sword and the hatred that the two had for one another and for their people was crucified at the cross. And the power of that canceled sin was broken. And love and the fulfilling of the law became the new principle guiding these hearts. That's what the Gospel does. 
That's the power it brings. And it only comes in Christ. And what the New Testament teaches and what Jesus teaches us is that to be in Him requires no great act of the will. And no profound work. It is very simple. Cast yourself completely upon Me. When the Gospel says believe in Jesus, it's not simply saying believe that He exists. It is saying you trust in Me. I'm the One who has dealt with your sin. I'm the One who has canceled your sin on the cross. You look to Me and you embrace Me as your Savior and all of this will be true. That's it. You just trust. You go to God. You pray to God. You say, Lord, I've I've seen Your Word. Your Word has revealed the secrets of my heart. And in my heart, I see only darkness and death. Remake me. Make me into something new. And Christ promises that if you will but call upon Him, He will indeed save you to the uttermost. You will be on a journey and moving in a direction and a pilgrimage towards, as Bunyan's famous Pilgrim's Progress describes, the celestial city. The city of gold. The city of beauty and peace. And the city where the law is always fulfilled in every single one of us. And the city in which the light of the glory of God shines. All you have to do is but Trust in Him. And He will hear your calls for mercy and save you. Well, let me pray for you now and pray for any who may have never done that very thing. And may have never experienced the new birth of Christ. Do you pray with me? Father, it is in Christ that the good news of the Gospel that we sinners deserving wrath can have eternal life and be made into new creatures made in the image and likeness of Jesus and become a people who are marked by what He was marked by. Humility and meekness and love and kindness. Father, I know as there is always when the Gospel is present and preached and the Word goes forth, there is someone who does not know You. And neither my words nor the words of any other can change the heart of that person. But You, O Lord, can. And Your Spirit can. Because Your Spirit has done that very work in us. Your people. You have removed the heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh that we might be sensitive to the things of God and rejoice in the Gospel. And so, Father, I pray 
for the heart in rebellion against you. That this Christmas season where we celebrate the coming of Christ who gives us the verdict of no condemnation, pray that this person might know that truth for them. They may call out to you in desperation and know that you have heard them and be brought into your family and experience the power of the Spirit of God in their lives. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name.